Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by State Senator Megan Hunt, a small business owner, community activist and now the representative from Omaha's 8th District. Senator Hunt, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Edward. I'm really happy to be here. And you can call me Megan. That's just fine. In November 2018, you became the first openly LGBTQ person ever elected to Nebraska's state legislature. Before your election, Nebraska was one of seven states that had never elected an openly LGBTQ person to the legislature. How important is it to have voices like yours finally in that legislature and the other six legislatures across the United States? I think, you know, it's not something that is a reason I ran. You know what I'm saying? It was just, you know, I come from this background of entrepreneurship and activism, and there's a lot of causes and organizations that I've worked with throughout the years. And so when I decided to run for office, I knew that so I'm bisexual. I know that when we say LGBTQ, sometimes it's like, which one? But okay, so I'm bisexual. Um, and I, I think that it's really important that we have representation in the bodies that, that reflect the people that they actually serve. And that is across all intersections of identity, whether that's sexual orientation and gender identity or race or belief. Um, until people start breaking those barriers down, there are people who are represented by these bodies that don't really have a voice in those bodies. And I think that that's a big problem when you're trying to legislate from a place of experience from a place of compassion and understanding. Um, I, can, I can understand and learn about the experiences of other people, but because there's things that I've personally gone through, our legislature is better now for having my voice as an as a out bisexual person um, represented and speaking for those people in Nebraska. You mentioned there about how you're proudly, openly bisexual. How important is bi visibility as someone who is bisexual. Anytime that, that we can shed a light on someone who has a marginalized identity, that is super important because it's showing other people that for, you know, for whom maybe it hasn't been safe for them to come out or they haven't had support in their communities or their workplaces or their families, um, that it's totally normal. And what I try to do in the legislature and as a public figure at all is just try to normalize um, human sexuality and love is love. And it's, you know, the things that I do in the bedroom are really not the most interesting thing about me. You know what I mean? And I think there's kind of this cultural obsession with what we do in our private lives, especially when, you know, that's out of the heterosexual norm. So, you know, bisexual people are more likely to be um, experience erasure in the LGBTQ community when you're, when you're, Dating someone of the same sex, that doesn't make you less bisexual, but sometimes we face um, some erasure. And that's why I think that the idea of visibility is so important. But we're also more likely to be in poverty. We're more likely to not finish college. We're more likely to have poor health outcomes. So there's also kind of a public health piece of understanding and lifting up the marginalized experiences of people who aren't heterosexual. And if we can have a day when, you know, we see politicians on Twitter talking about it, we see famous people talking about it. And that is all in the effort to keep normalizing what should be a completely unremarkable, normal, everyday experience and identity. And both your answers there really tie into the idea then that 
you didn't run because of your sexuality and you don't want what you do in your personal life to define everything about you. As you mentioned, there's more interesting things about you to talk about. Uh, that's why it's so important to normalize it. So people don't think it's such a rarity to see openly LGBTQ representatives, but they just go, oh, that's Senator Hunt. Exactly. And that's why I also think it's so important to say the first out LGBTQ person in our state legislature, because I guarantee you we have had, you know, we've had more gay people. We've had more trans people. Probably we've had bisexual people, I'm sure, in, in our state legislature, in all tiers of state and local government. And it's just that for them at that time, maybe it wasn't safe to be out. And I think that that's been, been an experience throughout history for everybody. In Nebraska, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity isn't banned across the state. Nebraska is one of a handful of states that bans same-sex marriage in the state constitution, and same-sex marriage is only legal in the state because of the 2015 Supreme Court ruling. Despite legislation being introduced in the state legislature, to ban discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. All of those bills have been rejected. Why do politicians in the state legislature, why do your fellow colleagues across the political spectrum refuse to outlaw discrimination? That is a really good question. Um, this was the first time, this, this past session in the Nebraska legislature was the first time that we actually had this debate about um, LGBTQ discrimination in Nebraska when they had a colleague from that community to learn from and listen to. And for a lot of people, I think that was a very important experience. And I'm actually pretty optimistic that in the future, we're gonna have more luck with that, um, just because of my presence there, to be quite honest. I mean, I am, uh, I kind of joke sometimes that I'm like the Diet Coke of LGBTQ. Like I'm, there's nothing challenging about me when you meet me. I'm. I'm 33, I'm blonde, I'm, you know, I'm cisgender, I, I present as a woman and I look like a woman. And so the, the oppression that I've had to face personally in my life, um, you know, I don't think that people stereotype me as bisexual or as gay when they look at me. So that has given me a lot of privilege um, to kind of get into some of the rooms and be taken seriously out the gate. And then when I talk about things like LGBTQ oppression and discrimination and how we need to change our workplace ordinance so that in Nebraska you can't get fired just for being gay, just for who you love. Um, when that comes from me, sometimes I think my colleagues listen to that more closely. I, I can't really explain to you why this hasn't been successful. I hear my colleagues say things like they don't believe it's really a problem. They don't really believe that anyone is getting fired for being gay. But I would challenge anybody who thinks that to try to live every day with the anxiety that you could be fired. Um, even, if, even if it never happens to you in your life, like don't you understand the low quality of life and the, the, the anxiety of just knowing that it's possible, why wouldn't we want to take that away from people? And also colleagues I have who don't support it, they say things all the time like, well, I don't want to discriminate against LGBTQ people. I don't care if you're gay. It doesn't bother me. I just don't think it's a problem. And that's also an argument that just doesn't make sense to me because we're telling you it's a problem. We're telling you it's a problem. And just because it's not something you experience, um, 
which you're lucky to never experience, honestly, that doesn't mean it's not real. So it's just chipping away gradually. Again, that thing I said of just normalizing um, non-heterosexual identities and making it feel like it's not a big deal, that there's nothing deviant about it, uh, that's a role that I see I have to play. And you brought up erasure that bisexual people feel and how certain groups are treated differently within the LGBTQ community by those looking in on the community. Nebraska's hate crime law covers hate crimes based on sexual orientation, but not those based on gender identity, which further reflects how transgender people in particular as a group face discrimination that others don't. What is being done by people within the state to protect transgender people? And you talked about the optimism you have for pushing anti-discrimination legislation. Do you think that that legislation will cover trans people in the state? Yeah, one of the bills that I brought this year um, was LB-166, Legislative Bill 166, which would prevent um, what's commonly known as the gay panic defense from being used in prosecutions. And what that is, is um, somebody goes into a panic, a gay panic, they say, because they find out that someone is a different gender identity than they thought, than they thought and then they freak out and they kill them. And then this has traditionally been a defense, especially in the murders of trans women that we've seen across the country um, that have gotten a lot of press attention in the past years. So I brought a bill that would prevent that defense from being used. Uh, right now, it's stuck in committee, in the Judiciary Committee, and so um, the next step for that is just talking to those committee members and, and putting public pressure on them to vote that bill out so we can have it on the floor for full debate. Um, another thing that we can do in Nebraska that I'm very passionate about is prevent, uh, prohibiting conversion therapy. Uh, conversion therapy, shouldn't even call it therapy, it's a totally debunked practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation. And this is also something that disproportionately affects trans people. Um, but it's also important not to just put a light on LGBTQ-specific bills, but also talk about incarceration, poverty, access to housing, workplace discrimination, because all of these ingredients is what adds up to a successful um, happy life in our state, which I think all of us want people to have. And acknowledging some of the issues as we have about Nebraska's treatment of LGBTQ individuals, conversion therapy is still legal in America, despite the fact that it's been proven to cause severe psychological distress and increased thoughts or uh, attempts at suicide, according to medical professionals. Why is this still a practice that states believe is acceptable and should be pushed upon individuals who, in some cases, are probably in their most vulnerable state where they're being forced to go through this therapy and they don't have the ability to seek help or support or sanctuary elsewhere? Well, the first hurdle that I have to overcome when I talk to my colleagues about conversion therapy, again, is just convincing them that it exists. So people have to understand that, first and foremost, that this is a real problem that LGBTQ children face. And sometimes it's their choice to go to conversion therapy. I've heard from many uh, gay people who talk about the self-loathing that they felt for themselves growing up and how they would have done anything to get rid of their feelings of same-sex attraction. Um, 
And that's something I relate to personally. And a lot of people have that experience when they're growing up and they feel like they're outside the norm this way. So they themselves sought conversion therapy as minors. And we know the effects of that and the negative effects that has on children and that they should never, uh, you should lose your license for providing that kind of treatment to a child. Um, I see, you know, this is maybe controversial to say, but a lot of the conversion therapy originates in the evangelical church. It, it, it originates on far-right religious institutions. And, you know, as a, society, as a society, we have to stop elevating far-right Christian evangelical values over values of humanity and human rights and the rights of children, um, the right to bodily autonomy. Um, and, you know, if people want to make the choice to have those beliefs, I, I wouldn't even try to do anything to stop them. But that does not make it okay to abuse children. Um, and to me, there is a straight line between um, churches and their discrimination against LGBTQ people, which they preach, and the self-loathing that these children feel that drives them to seek these treatments. Um, many times the parents don't even know what's going on. So I think it's time to peel back the layers on this, expose that it's actually happening. The film Boy Erased did a really great job of that. And there was a story of a, a local guy to me, a guy in Nebraska was featured in that film as well. Um, and, and just make sure that people understand that this is happening and that we need a public effort to do something about it and stop that. You say that that we need to stop elevating far-right evangelical views. Do you think that these views are elevated because of a wider issue, the influence that outside groups are given on politicians, whether that's because of the financial side of it, the money they're donating to these politicians, or because of the influence they have on elections and convincing groups of voters to support or oppose certain candidates. Do you think that's why these views are being elevated or is it something else that people are, are missing, people aren't seeing here? That's the biggest part that I can see, what you describe. Uh, the evangelical right does a really, really good job recruiting candidates. They do a really good job turning people out to vote. Um, and at a point, I have to question, I'm, you know, I'm not a believer. I'm not a person of faith myself, but I, I respect the teachings of Jesus. I think that they are important to society. I think that they offer comfort and solace to people who, who seek that comfort. But when you're doing things like conversion therapy, when you're advocating for things like kicking someone out of a business because of who they go home to at night, when you're when you're taking these rights away from people, how can you read the scripture and say that this is something Jesus would support? And I think that most Christians actually agree with that. I think that most, most believing people have that compassion in their hearts. But why aren't those the people who are running for office? You know, I think that all of the, you know, there's such a tangled web of problems here that I'm talking about. But there is a serious, organized far-right effort to recruit and elect candidates and to get people out to vote that no other religion has been able to harness. Um, and so something that I do in my personal life in Nebraska, in a flyover state, in a red state in the Midwest, 
I work really hard to recruit and train candidates. And um, I think that there's a lot of anxiety for people who are more centrist, who, who don't have these such extremist views, you know, to run for office. They think it's going to be so expensive. My family's going to come under attack. I'm not going to make any money. Like, there's a lot of very real sacrifices, like tangible sacrifices that come with running for office. And I'm trying to do a better job. And I think that, you know, all reasonable people in general need to be doing a better job of supporting these candidates and saying, we're not going to tar and feather you, but but we think you'd be great for the job and let's run a fair fight. Let's have a fair campaign. So to me, the problem is the candidates, really. I mean, we're not running the right people for office. People aren't winning. And it's just people on the extremes increasingly who are winning. And that's who gets to make the laws. It doesn't have to be right or fair or ethical. Um, you know, we know that the arc of the universe bends toward justice, but justice is also work. Things don't automatically work out. It takes work to make that happen. And, um, you know, evangelicals are working really hard to make that happen. And I don't know if we're doing the same thing. And that concerns me. And that's why people shouldn't be afraid to run for office or lobby politicians and put their voice out there as ordinary citizens or even just turn up at the ballot box and vote because when ordinary citizens go out there and make their voice heard, it in a way weakens the power that these large corporations, these large lobbying organizations have because it, the real power is with the voters. The real power yes. is with the constituents. And see, I'm an ordinary citizen. You know, there's all this hubbub about, Oh, I'm the first woman elected from my district. I'm the first LGBTQ person in the legislature. Oh, my God, we've made history. But I'm just a normal girl. I, I'm a single parent. I work a job. I struggle to access health care. I mean, I have very typical American experience. And I think to some people that's so novel and interesting and, and newsworthy. But it should be the most ordinary thing ever. And the fact that this is so weird to people tells me we have been running the wrong people, like the wrong people are in charge. The fact that in 2019, it took until 2019 for a, a, a white, conventionally attractive, cisgender, bisexual woman to be elected, and we think that that's record-breaking. We think that that's like an amazing historical accomplishment. It's something. It's a first. And I think that it's good to celebrate first. But that is not nearly enough. And I, I struggle to say that I'm proud of myself for that. I mean, I'm proud of my accomplishments in other areas, but I'm just who I am. And that's not something I can change about myself. So that's not something I take credit for. But um, just not having that diversity of representation, uh, I don't, I'm actually pretty disappointed in that. And I really need more people in the legislature who can back me up, who share these normal everyday experiences, who knows what it's like to go get your own groceries. I mean, um, not just in Nebraska, but all over the country. Earlier you mentioned there are more interesting qualities about you than just your sexuality. There's more things that make you who you are than just how you were born. So let's talk about some of those. You have a business <laughs> background. That's where you came from. You're not a politician. You have that understanding of being a small business owner from your experience there what do you think about issues like for example the minimum wage should there be a 15 dollar an hour federal minimum wage this national living wage that's been proposed do you think that would be beneficial for 
ordinary working people out there in America who are just trying to make ends meet? I think that a $15 minimum wage would be hard to implement tomorrow in Nebraska. Um, we have a smaller cost, we have a lower cost of living in Nebraska. Um, I do think the minimum wage should be $15 an hour. I don't care if it's $20 an hour. Like, the point isn't what number the wage is to me. The point is, do everyday people who I represent, who I live with and go to school with and go to work with, do they have enough to get by? And sometimes the answer to that problem isn't just guaranteeing that they get more money. Um, sometimes the answer to that problem is making sure that they have as fair and equal of a shot at opportunity that everybody else has. So what is a fair shot at opportunity? It doesn't mean giving them money necessarily, um, although I think that's a solution worth exploring in a way. I think it means access to a fair wage. It means access to benefits like paid family medical leave. So when you have to take care of a sick relative or when you have a baby, you actually have time to, to do that. It means access to health care. I'm in the Medicaid gap myself, which means that I don't have health insurance and I'm not insured. And so uh, that's an extremely common experience in Nebraska. And I would rather have health insurance than make a few more dollars an hour because that's a bigger benefit to me. Um, do people have access to safe housing? We have a lot of problems with uh, lead and we have environmental issues that create housing that's unsafe. We have a gun violence epidemic. Um, so what are we doing to improve the quality of life for people besides just giving them a check? Um, I do, you know, have this kind of this, this Midwestern salt of the earth, hardworking ethic of you need to earn what you have. But at the same time, I do share the leftist view of it doesn't matter if you're earning what you have when you're not getting what you deserve. And that is health care, that's access to safe housing, that's non-discrimination. Um, paid family leave. These are things that are going to improve people's lives measurably um, in addition to increasing the minimum wage. We often hear about what politicians are doing for large corporations, these tax cuts that are brought in under particularly the Trump administration for large corporations to help line the pockets of wealthy individuals in America. But What's being done for these small businesses like the ones that you were involved with, like your background is in? What's being done for those small businesses and small business owners or what needs to be done if it's not being done already? That's my exact question. I mean, I think that on the left, a, a trap that we fall into um, is we kind of conflate all business owners together. We think that the, the person who owns the little taco shop on the corner is has more in common with, you know, a CEO at a big company than they do with a worker. And in my business, I'm a worker. I have I have uh, six employees right now. Um, I get paid the least of all of them. None of us have benefits, and we're all just really scrapping. Most of them have other jobs, and we're just. I mean, we, I run a clothing store. We're just running a clothing store, and we're having a lot of fun. And I love my job, and I love my business, but. That is closer to the experience of the worker, and that's also probably the most common small business owner experience. So when we are giving tax cuts and incentives away to these big corporations that, that have the biggest disparity between what they're paying their C-suite executives and what they're paying their lowest paid workers, 
that's not something that small business owners relate to. I mean, none of us are at that level. That's not realistic. Um, so all the benefits and the dollars that we're giving to these bigger companies, whether that's locally at the state level where I am or federally here in the United States, that's money that is being taken away from workers. Um, it's being taken away from the labor that they've performed to earn that money for other people. And then they go home to a bad school with no health care. We are taking away access to SNAP, to food assistance. All of the benefits of the fruits of our labor are going away into the pockets of rich people. So evening the playing field by stop giving these huge tax incentives and breaks to the people who didn't earn them, what if we gave those incentives to the workers? I think that would have way bigger results for growing an economy, for growing Main Street, for getting more small businesses like mine to open in my neighborhood. That's what would be best for our local economy. You mentioned there how this is sort of a left idea that you're supporting by helping these ordinary working people in America. Do you think that that's part of the issue here is that supporting small businesses, supporting ordinary workers in America and doing more for them, whether that's a minimum wage, whether that's incentives for the businesses, has become this left-right issue. And instead of looking at what these people need, what these small businesses need, what the people who are working for these businesses need, it's become this political football where it's seen as left or right rather than for the American people or not. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not like a political researcher or scientist, so I can't say why that is or what the reason, but I agree. I think that it does seem too politicized, and you can't deny that in America we're increasingly politicized people. We're increasingly divided, and it perplexes me because I don't know why um, – you know, a blue-collar worker in Nebraska, uh, maybe working on a farm or working in a factory or working for the railroad uh, or working for a little shop like mine, why do you identify more with the people who are working to make corporations rich? Why do you think that they're going to do anything to help you? Um, in Nebraska, we do have a strong tradition of supporting unions, which – uh, I think has been a great influence in our local conversations about workers and businesses and and the importance of balancing the assistance that we all get. Um, so that's kind of where I look to for guidance sometimes. But I think, you know, in Nebraska, we also have this really important nonpartisan government tradition. So Nebraska is special because we have the only nonpartisan unicameral legislature in the country. And we also have the smallest legislature in the country with just 49 senators. So that means that we don't have an upper and lower house. We have just one house. We don't have any party leadership. We don't have a majority or minority leader. We don't have any caucuses. We don't have any aisles. And everybody in the legislature is elected on a nonpartisan ticket. So I'm a registered Democrat, but when I got elected, it did not say Democrat next to my name. It said nonpartisan because um, that's the, the qualification of the office. So with Nebraska, which is a red state, it's conservative-leaning for sure, um, we have a really unique opportunity in the state to serve as kind of an experimental field for other states. 
in how to decrease partisanship. And there are so many think tanks and thought leaders in big universities on the coast in the United States who are trying to find a solution to how do we fix Congress? How do we decrease partisanship? How do we get more centrists engaged in the civic system? Well, I think that the answer might be in Nebraska. I am pretty far left, but I have to work every day with 48 other people who are politically different from me. And you know what? We do. We have genuine friendships in the body. We have um, honest, good faith conversations about what's best. And a big reason why that is successful is because we don't have partisan leaders telling us how to vote or what to think or what bills we can introduce or how we should vote. That is not the case in any other state. So I wish people would see Nebraska for the opportunities that we have here to learn about how to decrease the partisanship. And um, I think everybody, I, I mean, I think the nonpartisanship thing is great, but um, if we can just get to a more reasonable place, that's something that every state would benefit a lot from. And Congress, too. I mean, Congress has a lot to learn from Nebraska, for sure. It shows that when people focus on what matters for the state, what matters for the people that they're to represent, they actually get more done than if they're fighting petty political battles. Yes, we frequently, so in, on my side, the Democrats, the, elect, the uh, registered Democrats in the legislature, I think there's only 17 of us or something, but, um, you know, we frequently disagree too. And we frequently vote differently from each other. And I can say the same for the Republicans. And we've got a couple independents in there, too. And there is no other state where that's possible. So while partisanship is a huge problem and it really sucks, in Nebraska, I think we struggle with that a lot less than other states do. Another issue that you've spoken out on in the past is how a, quote, high-quality and well-funded public school system is instrumental to the success of all children. And an affordable college education is a critical investment in Nebraska's future. Could you elaborate on those points and why you think they're, they're particularly important and how that fits into the situation that's going on in Nebraska at the moment? Absolutely. Education is an important right, and it's the foundation of where you start learning these civic concepts about engagement and government and nonpartisanship and bipartisanship and all of the things that make me excited to, to be in service to my, to my community through government work. Um, it gives you literacy, you know, educa public education to, like, process the media and, and figure out what you think about things and think critically. And... I think that public schools are absolutely doing the best job at that. This is something we have in the United States that is so special and important. And um, it's, it's, a, it's something that I'm always going to be making sure that we invest in with our state budget. When, when people criticize public schools and say, like, well, I couldn't send my kid to one, or, like, I think they're great, but it's not right for me, the way I feel is if a school isn't good enough for my child, it's not good enough for any child. So – why should a school be open and, and serving any children if it's not good enough for my kid? I have a nine-year-old who's in fourth grade, and I'm in contact with her teacher all the time. I um, try to be as engaged in her school as I can, but I'm, I'm also a single working parent. I'm also in the legislature. I have a lot on my plate, and so I understand that parents have to trust schools 
to do their jobs and to do a great job educating their children. Um, and I think public teachers do a great job at that. So part of my role that I see is, um, you know, working with education leaders in the state, making sure the teachers have the resources they need to do a good job for our kids. Um, and then when they get out of school, if they want to pursue a college degree, if they think that that's the right path for them, that needs to be affordable. And we need to make sure that we're not saddling them with debt for the rest of their lives um, to accomplish something in a world where jobs are increasingly scarce, increasingly low paying. Um, and I think that the value of a college education just isn't what it used to be, but it's even more expensive. So huge supporter of our public university system, huge supporter of our public school system, but we need to make sure that the value is still there for kids um, who benefit from that education. Over here in the United Kingdom, we have a university system, the equivalent education of America's college system, where people ha don't have to put forward their own cash up front to pay the tuition fees. It's provided in a loan, which is paid off once you start earning a certain amount in the UK. In America, you have to pony up that cash at the beginning. You have to have that money to be able to afford tuition at American colleges. Do you think that college education should be free? Do you think it should be substantially lower? Is that reduction in cost achieved by government intervention? How, how does the cost of education get reduced in America? I do think that the cost of education should be free. I think that we're to the point as a society where we have the wealth and we have the resources to make sure that all of our people are educated. Other countries are doing it, like you mentioned. Um, I spent about a month in China a couple months ago this summer, and I spoke at several universities and, and schools and learned from teachers there, and they are really working hard to get their students into master's programs, into STEM education, um, and that's why other countries are going to be lapping the United States innovation and economic development because we have, we're so obsessed with this like bootstraps mentality of like, you know, you can pay your way through college like I did, like our grandparents say, but they don't stop to realize that when they were kids, they didn't have to work another job. College costs so much less. And the burden that that's putting on kids today is just insurmountable. So in Nebraska, which is where I work. I mean, I don't know the solution for the whole country, but thankfully a lot of really smart people are working on that, people who are smarter than me. But in Nebraska, we need to start with community college. Um, community colleges in Nebraska are excellent, and I think that we do have room to, um, you know, find ways to make that more affordable and accessible for Nebraskan kids, uh, potentially giving incentives to Nebraskans who stay here after college and earn their degree and continue to develop our economy here. Um, there's all kinds of incentive programs that we're talking about in the legislature, and I'm eager to see how those shake out, you know, as we continue to discuss with other community leaders and, and people who have been working on this for a long time. Nebraska is a state which has 45.2 million acres utilized by farms and ranches. That's about 91% of the state's total land area. So if I didn't talk about farming issues, I might come under some criticism by the people that are listening. One in four jobs in Nebraska are related to agriculture, 
and it is a huge part of Nebraska's economy. You've talked about the challenges Nebraskan farmers are facing. The American Farm Bureau stated that Donald Trump's trade war is making life harder for farmers. What can Nebraska's legislature be doing? What should Nebraska's legislature be doing to protect farmers in the state to make sure that they don't face the challenges that they're currently facing, that they're not affected by any negative repercussions from the trade war? I don't know what we're going to do at the state level to protect farmers and ranchers in Nebraska from um, all of the really misguided policy that's really come from the top from the last year. But then we also have climate change. We've had horrible flooding in Nebraska, um, which is why I signed on to, I'm I'm the co-sponsor of a bill to create a climate change commission in Nebraska to create a long-term plan for sustainability um, and, uh, you know, have an environmental plan for how we're going to sustain what really is like the most important resource we have in our economy in Nebraska, which is our agriculture. Um, but floods, tariffs, our declining workforce, you know, we have a, a huge brain drain problem in Nebraska with people leaving the state, climate change, property taxes, all of these things are hurting the family farmers and ranchers that make up the backbone of Nebraska's economy. So to me, what I'm going to be leading on in that area at the state is climate change issues. And then also what we can do to attract and retain talent in Nebraska um, to make sure that those young people who could be working on the farms, who could be taking over the family farm and continuing the tradition of agriculture that that defines Nebraska in so many ways, to make sure that they're able to do that. And that's access to health care. That's access to college. That's, um, you know, making sure that we have a culture in our state that, that young people see this as a place where they actually want to live. You mentioned there about the impacts of climate change. Climate change in Nebraska is an issue similar to those across other states in the United States. There's the flooding that you talked about. There's other issues that's going to have a significant impact on the economy, the environment, the people that are living in Nebraska. What needs to be done to address growing threat of climate change? We've seen Greta Thunberg talk at the UN General Assembly about how politicians are failing. They're not taking their responsibility seriously to address the issue of climate change. But we're also seeing people like President Donald Trump pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, a climate accord that every other country has signed up for. Syria signed up for it after the United States pulled out of it. So the United States is an outlier in this situation. So what needs to be done? What can be done to tackle climate change when the current occupant of the White House is refusing to take the threat of climate change seriously? Well, the current occupant of the governor's mansion in Nebraska feels the same way. Our state governor is a climate change denier. He rejects the reality of the scientific consensus that climate change is happening. And that's why we need leaders with the courage to fight against climate change and against wasting funds on things like a border wall and against wasting funds on things like sending our, uh, our National Guard in Nebraska down to the border to defend the border against 
Mexicans who are coming over the border to work in our fields and help us have a successful economy. Um, these types of things are distracting from where we should be putting our resources, which is into more sustainable energy codes. This year we passed um, LB405, which was a bill to update our state building and energy codes. And it was kind of a bill that flew under the radar, but I'm very excited about it because now all new construction in Nebraska is going to be up to the highest standard um, from the International Code Council of Energy Efficiency. So today, actually, Nebraska has the most progressive energy codes in the whole country. Um, and that's something that I think that we should be proud of. But there's a long way to go. And I think that a climate change commission where we can get people who are experts, people who have been doing the research for a long time in front of the legislature to recommend policy changes and say, how can Nebraska be a leader for agricultural sustainability? And how can we join states like California, Massachusetts, other states that have said, we do want the Paris Climate Accords. You know, we do want our auto manufacturers to be held to a higher tier of responsibility. Um, we do want more options for public transportation. We want to have fewer emissions. Um, and again, there are so many people who are working on policy on that, and I'm carrying some of it myself into the legislature, and I'm in full support of, of the teamwork that's going on to make sure that all of this eventually gets to the floor for a vote. But I also think that, I mean, I'm kind of talking about like what lawmakers can do in the face of opposition um, from the top. So in the legislature, we don't have a lot of support from the governor on this kind of thing, and that makes it hard to get things done. And that's why the role of activists and advocates is also so important. I was at the climate strike march outside the state capitol a couple days ago here in Nebraska, and Seeing the young people, I mean, I think there's some future state senators in that crowd. There's future state uh, city council members. There's future school board members. So what Americans need to do is pay attention all the way up and down the ballot and maybe not have so much anxiety about what the president is doing because none of us can change that. We need to be paying attention to what's happening at the state and local level and ask these candidates how are you going to address climate change in schools when you're running for school board? What initiatives are you going to do at the city level um, to, to fight the impact of climate change for people running for city council? Um, I think that we put too much trust in Congress. We put too much um, responsibility on the president. And none of those people are going to do anything for us. We have to put our all of our eggs into the state and local basket and encourage those politicians to represent us because that's where change is really going to happen on climate change. While we're talking about climate change, an issue that's particularly important to Nebraska is the Keystone Pipeline, which you've not been supportive of the Keystone XL extension. How would that extension affect Nebraska and also impact climate change and the direction that the state is taking when it comes to the environment? Well, what I understand from farmers and ranchers in Nebraska is that they don't want the pipeline because they're going to have to give up their land, land that they need more than ever to, to farm and make money for their families in the face of climate change and floods and tariffs that we're going through here in Nebraska. So I'm just inclined to listen to those farmers and ranchers who tell me, uh, you know, we're not against making money, we're not against uh, growing the economy, but this is not going to be the way to do it. Another thing that happened is, is just a, a year ago or so, 
over 210,000 gallons of oil um, spilled from the Keystone Pipeline. And so I can say that's not something that we need coming through Nebraska. We have um, First Nations, we have tribal land here, and they have sovereignty too. And they have a right to say what's happening on the land that, that they are the stewards of. And for us to be dumping oil on it, um, I do not think that that's worth any amount of profit because it's not going to be a long-term gain. It's going to be a long-term loss. And we're just at a place, we're in a place as a society where we have to be thinking long-term. And think about sustainability. Think about the potential we have in Nebraska for wind energy. If we invested in wind energy in Nebraska and other Plains states, like we have in all the sturm and drang about the Keystone XL pipeline, we would already be generating more energy than we could get from the pipeline. So I think it's a big waste of energy, and it's really frustrating to me that the level of discussion and discourse and possibility is so low. Um, we're just fighting over the same basic things. And by basic, I mean base, like the lowest possible solution when we should be thinking with innovation. We should be innovating our universities and our researchers and um, the community of engineers that we have in Nebraska to find solutions to climate change and energy efficiency and sustainable energy sources. Um, but we've been arguing about Keystone Excel for like six years instead, so I guess people think that's a better use of time, but to me it's insane. You highlight how the state could focus instead on more renewable types of energy. Do you believe that states like Nebraska should, instead of looking to projects like the extension of the Keystone Pipeline, they should turn their attention to clean energy options like wind, solar, instead of that money they're spending on coal, oil, etc.? Yes, exactly. I saw a, a report a couple months ago that said that Nebraska has the third highest potential in the country um, for wind energy generation. And you know what? That makes total sense to me because I've driven across Nebraska so many times. It is so flat. It is so wide. There is so much damn land. And if we had some windmills up there generating energy from this flat, windy plains land, that would be great for the property owners who want to have the windmills. It would be great for um, the economy of our state, and it would be awesome for generations to come who don't have to deal with oil spills and ugly pipelines and dependence on fossil fuels, because that's not a renewable resource. The oil's going to go away. It's not going to be here. So what are we going to do when it's gone? Suddenly build a windmill and do what we should have been doing before? That's just, you know, think like a business owner. In my business, we would never do that. We would never do something saying, well, we know that in a year or in five years, we're going to have to do the complete opposite of what we're doing, but this is just easier today, so let's do that instead, um, especially when there's no cost savings. So I don't know why this seems like the right solution to everybody because I don't think it makes business sense. I don't think it makes ecological sense. Um, and for the sustainability of the world for our grandchildren, kind of going back to those evangelical beliefs of like, the teachings of Jesus, which seem to, to drive so much of the policy that we have in this country for some reason, why aren't we being stewards of the land? Why aren't we protecting God's earth? And this is such an easy way to do that. We've talked about the way that people can make their voices heard. We've talked about the issues affecting individuals in the state. 
but to be able to address those issues, to be able to raise their voice about certain issues, local people need to have access to their representatives. You recently criticized Nebraska Senator Ben Sass for not holding a town hall since 17th March 2017. Why is it so problematic that he's not speaking to constituents and why do you think he's refusing to hold town halls? I think he's refusing to hold town halls because it's been so long since he was accessible to voters that so much pressure has built up and he knows that it's going to be a negative experience for him. Um, and I don't know that he has the fortitude to, you know, endure such, such negativity from his constituents. I have a town hall in my district every two months. And they go about 30% of the time I'm getting negative feedback and 70% of the time I'm getting positive or neutral feedback. And I think that if you have regular opportunities for voters to engage with you and constituents to engage with you as an elected official, that's a pretty good ratio. I mean, that's, that's about what you would expect. That far exceeds the, the partisanship that we see in our country. You know, maybe you would think it would be 50-50, positive-negative, given that you know, I represent, you know, half Democrats and half Republicans. But I think that the accessibility that I provide to my constituents, um, it builds trust with them. It shows them and convinces them that I am working for them because they can get a check-in every couple months about what I've accomplished and what I've done for them. And it also gives them a free forum to give me their ideas and share their concerns with me and tell me, What's going on at work? What's going on at school? What's happening in your neighborhood that's bothering you that I can help you fix? Um, and I think that if Senator Sass had the courage to do the same thing, he would actually be a much more effective leader. He would have a lot less negativity on Twitter directed toward him, which I know politicians hate. Um, and he would probably have a better time serving the people and enjoy his job a lot more. So I know that uh, I have some sympathy for him because this is the first elective office that he's ever held. And I can imagine that if your first elective office you held is at the federal level, like that's a lot of pressure and maybe it's a lot for him to handle. But I think that if he could have the courage to show more accessibility to his constituents, that would pay dividends for him. Senator Megan Hunt, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I had such a good time talking to you. That was Megan Hunt, the representative from Omaha's 8th District. You can find out more about her on Twitter at NebraskaMegan or at www.meganfornebraska.com. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.